welcome to Nelda Live. Join your host, Nelda Sue Yor, as she talks to the artists, dreamers, storytellers, and pioneers to learn about their inspiration and the tools and techniques they use to make a difference. You too might be inspired, because as Nelda likes to say, sometimes all it takes is a spark. Here's Nelda. Hello, today on Nelda Live, my guest is psychologist, Dr. James Pennebaker. Welcome back, James. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. So you refer to yourself as a social psychologist. Could you tell us a little bit about what social psychology is and how you got into the field? So social psychology is kind of a broad field. It basically deals with how people are influenced by others and how we influence others. But more broadly, it's it deals with everything, how we think, how we think about others, how we, our emotions, our tips. And it's an, I got into it just by fluke. I was reading, uh, I was about to start my junior year in college and I was at a bookstore and saw an introductory psychology book and I hadn't taken any psychology and I read the entire book that summer. And the section on social psychology was just lovely because it was uh, there were all of these unbelievably interesting studies, including the Milgram study, where people thought they were giving massive shocks to other people. And the mere fact that you could get people to do horrible things, uh, and these were good people, just I was just uh, fascinated by it. So you, early in your career, you developed a method called expressive writing. What is it, and how did you develop it? Well... Um, after I went to graduate school and uh, I became interested in the mind-body problem in, in terms of why people get sick and also how they come to know how they feel. And early in my career, I did this large project where I was passed out questionnaires and I was asking people about their health, their physical symptoms. And I used this as an opportunity to, to just ask general questions to people. Their, their diet, the relationship with their parents. And we put on one question, which was, prior to the age of 17, did you ever have a traumatic sexual experience? There was no reason for it. It just seemed interesting. And what we found was that uh, this first one was a college student sample. About 15% said that they had had a traumatic sexual experience. But those who endorsed it had all kinds of health problems. And later we discovered, using national samples, that the numbers were higher, but still that one question really provoked people talking about these, their major health problems. And then we later discovered it wasn't having a traumatic sexual experience per se, it was having any trauma that you kept secret. And this secrecy issue fascinated me and I became curious, what if we in the laboratory had them talk about or write about secrets? And it turned out talking was too complicated. so. I had people come in and write for four days, 15 minutes a day about major life experiences that they had not spoken to other people about. And that was really the birth of this expressive writing. And the idea behind it was I wanted to have people come in and write maybe for three or four days, maybe 15 minutes a day. I, want, I wanted it to be a, a set amount of time, but enough time for the people to think about it and really process it. And we found in that first study, and this first study was done with college students, 
who had given us permission to access their center records, that those people who wrote about these traumatic experience, experiences compared to people who wrote, we asked to write about superficial topics, that they ended up going to the student health center at about half the rate as control conditions. And that was really the birth of expressive writing. So they actually went less? They went much less. And, and the kind of things that they went for, reasons college students go to the student health center, colds, flus, headaches, upset stomachs, things like that. But after writing, they just didn't go as much. So over time, have you found emotional and physical health benefits to expressive writing? Um, that first research was published in 1986. And our second study, we, we uh, looked at immune function. We worked with some immunologists and we drew blood and we found that writing about upsetting experiences was associated with enhanced immune function. And then other labs started to get involved and they started to do similar studies and they got uh, generally positive health effects. And now I don't even know how many studies are published. It's well over a thousand. And it's uh, now a, a very well established phenomenon. We see it in samples all over the world, all different languages from people with all different backgrounds. It's a really, it's a, it's been really satisfying to see how many studies have been done and how many people now do it. So you're saying that the emotional and physical health benefits are in the immune system? That's how it affects? Well, it, it's, the immune system is clearly at play, but this is, it's a bigger issue than that. Think about what happens when you, when you discover something about yourself, something really big. What happens is, and the way I think about this is, there are all of these things that are going on. So let's say that I'm having trouble sleeping because I keep obsessing about this thing that happened to me. I'm not getting much sleep. I'm not eating well. I'm thinking about it. I'm obsessing. I'm not communicating with my spouse. I'm not communicating with my friends very well. Uh, I'm not focusing at work very well. I can't read. I'm distracted. My memory's not very good. And now I sit down and start to write about it. And I start writing about it and I go, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I didn't see this. And oh, that's related to this. And by doing this, we start to understand it better. And when we're finished, we don't need to obsess about it anymore. It's, it's, this burden is almost lifted. And I can sleep again. So I, I go back to sleep. We know that sleep's related to immune function. We know it's related to depression. We know it's related to appetite. Um, I am now, I can now listen to my spouse. I can talk to her and we can have a good conversation. My friends now, I'm connecting with them better. In other words, you can think of this as almost a cascade of effects that occur so that uh, my memory's better, my, I sleep better, my immune system's better, my cardiovascular system's better. I am functioning more effectively. So it's, it's all of those things. So is expressive writing different than journaling or writing in a diary? In some ways, yes. I, th I view uh, journaling or diary writing as something that you do for your life or for long periods of time. And, you know, I, I view expressive writing as something where you are trying to work through a specific painful issue. And I don't think working through painful, miserable uh, experiences 
day day week after week is healthy for you it's almost that's almost the definition of depression or rumination and i can tell you i wouldn't do this stuff if i if someone said oh yeah yes for the rest of your life i'm going to do it for the rest of my life you know if my life is going well i'm not going to write about it because there's no need to but if something bad happens and if i'm now worrying about it obsessing about it i view writing as a really strong way to get past it it's almost kind of a life course correction rather than a life lifelong exercise now you know i don't i only write when my life you know i have some big ugly thing happening in my life and i'm lucky i might that might be two or three times a year it, but i don't do it every day i would never do it every day so that that that's that's how it came to pass and that's what i find it most useful for with me and also with the people I work with so um do people get the same effects when they just talk to someone or vent well there are two questions um when you're talking to somebody if that other person is completely accepting of you and no matter what you say they're not going to be hurt and they will accept you afterwards i think talking is as good maybe some sometimes better than right but that is the that is the risk that you take because we've all had that experience we start talking to somebody and we can see on their face that they're horrified and we change the topic because we figure out man i shouldn't talk to this person and it, and you and the same thing is true even in psychotherapy very often you start therapy you know you don't know this person you don't really trust them here you know maybe in a few weeks you will but right now you hold back and that's where writing is really beneficial because it's for you and you alone and it's not to, I, I don't recommend sharing it i re recommend throwing it away frankly or keeping it somewhere where nobody else will see it also said uh in talking to uh, venting to them venting's different expressive writing is not venting to me expressive writing is is self reflection you are looking inward you are you are trying to understand the way we think about venting is like getting a computer you know what do they call them the encounter bats you know those kind of plastic bats that you would hit another person or you 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 hit a pillow come on that, there is no evidence that that is any it makes you might feel feel better for a few minutes but afterwards do you still feel angry yeah you feel angry afterwards it doesn't make the anger go away it doesn't help you understand anything so venting i view you know and all the evidence suggests venting there's not good evidence that it's beneficial in the long run agreed i'm just curious do you know how many studies have come off of your original expressive writing study as i said uh it's been more than a thousand uh there could be 2000 you know who who counts but it's uh there it's really it's become kind of a cottage industry that's amazing absolutely amazing must be a, a wonderful feeling too to know that you opened up something that way yeah it's really gratifying so jordan peterson has referred to you as one of his favorite psychologists how would you compare your work to his work in this area uh i've been interviewed by him once and it was funny i hadn't heard of him and uh he i guess he it was early early in his uh podcasting career 
And uh, I'd heard a little bit about some of the research he's done because he's a personality psychologist and done, done some work there. Uh, and since then, I now realize, wow, he's a, he's a, big, a big deal. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but I can't, you know, I don't know his, you know, his broad approach. I know that in our conversation, I was extremely impressed with him. He's a real bright guy. And he's, uh, I think, um, in many ways, is really grounded in terms of many of the things he talks about. I know he's highly controversial, but I, I can't, I, I'm, I don't know that much about it. Okay, so when we go back to expressive writing, uh, do you recommend someone try expressive writing directly or immediately after a trauma? I, I have a general philosophy, which is people are their own best therapists. You have a sense afterward, immediately after an upsetting experience, would this be good for me to write about right now? And the research says, if I'm a researcher, it's probably not good for me to go and rub it in your nose right now. So if there's been a, a, you've just learned something horrible, someone close to you has just been killed or whatever, if a psychologist comes up and says, okay, I'm going to have you start writing, all the research says that's probably not good for you. However, I've had people tell me that immediately after something, they started writing and it, it saved their life. But I do know for many people, it's not healthy. And in fact, the average person, when they've had something really bad happen, in the first hours and days afterwards, they tend to do things to distract themselves. They start cleaning obsessively. They pay bills. They, uh, you know, I had a horrible thing happen with me, and I, the way I dealt with it, I started playing, just when computers came out, I had a, a copy of Pac-Man, and I played Pac-Man probably 10 hours a day for a week and I sure got good at Pac-Man but uh, but I also felt that that was really healthy for me because this was a really big deal I had been turned down for tenure at, at uh, when I was a, a young faculty member which often is career destroying and that while I was playing Pac-Man I was able to kind of process a lot of this stuff but at you know, I was almost titrating, letting some of it in at a time. And I think that's where distraction is, can be really healthy in the early days of a traumatic experience. If I were uh, still obsessing it all the time six months later, then I would say writing would be a really good idea. I think the rule I have is, is if you find yourself thinking and worrying about and dreaming about something too much, writing will probably be good. If immediately after something horrible happens and you're thinking about it all the time, you know, that's not too much. That's frankly, that's normal. It's just when it gets to this point that other people are sick of hearing you talk about, that's when writing might be good. So what about with children? Has the expressive writing, has it been used with children who've gone through trauma or is it really just more effective with adults? We're in an interesting place in our culture, which is um, having it doing research with children, having them write about upsetting experiences is 
a really risky occupation for a researcher because if a, a child writes about abuse or something like that, we are by law required to essentially call in the police, the uh, social services and SWAT teams show up. And that's, you know, it's a, ter it's a terrible bind because I do think writing can sometimes be good for, with children, but there's research one way or the other. You know, if you think about what therapists do, in some, t some ways they, they do that. So with kids, they will often have them uh, play with uh, dolls or something like that where they are doing things that are they're acting out upsetting experience, and, they, and then the therapist asks them to talk more about it. Uh, but right now, there's just, I don't have enough evidence one way or the other. Mm -hmm. You know, I know with my own kids, when, when they were, you know, starting around 11, 12, occasionally I would have them, I'd say, look, uh, I know you're upset. I'd like to have you go to your room and just write about it for a while. They hated it, but then they'd come out and they'd say, yeah, and they'd be in a good mood. And I'd say, you seem a lot happier. What's, why do you think that is? Okay, I wrote about it. Uh, so I did see that it worked. <laughs> so let's say today someone's listening and they want to try expressive writing. How should they get started? It's real easy. Find a place where you're not going to be disturbed. Promise yourself that you'll write about whatever it is that's bothering you for, you know, aim for, say, three days, 10, 15 minutes a day. I would recommend writing longhand, but if you want to uh, type it on a computer, whatever you're more comfortable with, it doesn't matter. Sit down and just begin writing. Don't worry about grammar. Don't worry about spelling. This is for you and you alone. And just start writing. Don't try to impress anybody with your amazing vocabulary or your cleverness. This is for you and for you alone. Plan on throwing it out. And if you don't, that's fine. But uh, this really is for you. And in your writing, you might ask yourself, why am I being, why is this thing I'm dealing with bothering me so much? What is it that's hooking me? How is this related to other things that have gone on in my life in the past that might be similar? How is it related to important relationships with my parents, with my uh, spouse or friends? How is this related to my career? How is this related to other issues that are bothering me? Is it, uh, does it say anything about who, who I've been in the past or who I want to be in the future or who, are, who, who I am now? In your writing, whatever you choose to write about, just let go, go and explore your very deepest thoughts and feelings. And also, each day, you can write about something different. You can write about the same thing. It's really, it's entirely up to you. It, so those are, that's the basic, those are the basic instructions. And write, but try to write for a full, say, 10 or 15 minutes. And um, if you run out of things, say, just repeat what you said already. But I find that it's a really, the instructions are very easy. And you also need to assess yourself after each writing session. Was this helpful? Were there other topics I should be dealing with? Or, or, the, or are some of these topics really not that big a deal for me? And, um, you know, sometimes people will write with pencil or pen. 
Sometimes they type. Sometimes they write with their non-dominant hand. Sometimes with their dominant hand. Experiment. See what works for you. I even have experimented with people having them write with their fingers in the air. So it's just they do finger writing. And that way they don't have to worry about uh, anybody ever seeing it. But the, the, the goal here is to put upsetting experiences into language, into words. By writing, whether typing or writing or finger writing, you're slowing the process down. Your, your brain is having to organize it and, and structure it in a way that is understandable to you. And it's not, it's not happening really quickly the way you do when you're just walking along and one thought pops in and another one pops out. So how does it help? I know that I've read about trauma, having experienced some myself, where the, the hemispheres are not moving at the you know, same right when the, when the trauma actually uh, occurs. So what is this sort of reattaching, if you will, uh, of both sides of the brain? What's it doing for us? Uh, neuroscientists would say it's probably not the two sides of the brain. What it, what it really is, is, is if you've had a, a really experience and you haven't talked about it, very often you've been actively avoiding acknowledging it active avoiding putting it into words and so it's kind of an incomplete experience you'll have images of this and images of that and smells and things that you might remember but what the writing does is it is slowing this down and tying this experience together and it's really important to appreciate an experience you know um a terrible experience getting raped getting beaten, losing your job, uh, getting rejected by a, a lover or a spouse. Those things are not just a rape. They're not just a this or just a that. Those things have affected everything. They affect, there was that experience, but that experience very likely messed up your relationships with people close to you. It's a very good the very good possibility that it messed up things at work and and it's not un unlikely that it affected your financial situation the way that you were eating the way that you're moving about the way that you negotiate your life and coming to realize how this event which you in your mind might have been you know saying it's only this it's only affecting this part of my life that's false it's probably affecting everything around your life. And this is where writing is really helpful for you to start to see its enormity on you and your, your life and your friends and everything else. So as a professor, you've been able to see several generations of college students go through your classroom. Are students showing up to college prepared? You know, I've always been fascinated by this. Always older people, parents and older look at the younger kids and say, this next generation, it's just a disaster. They're not getting the education. They've been doing this. Look, our parents said the same thing about us. Our grandparents said the same thing about our, our parents. And if you look, Shakespeare talks about it. This is the history of literature. I'm finding today's students fabulous. They're really good. And they are goof-offs. 
they are uh, terribly underprepared, just like I was. Uh, they, they come in and they're sometimes lost. Wow, that's the way I went to college. The point is, is I view today's students as, as really wonderful with tremendous potential to them. And they're negotiating a really different world than you and I did at that age. But look what our parents said about us. You know, I grew up in the, in the era of hippies and drugs. And I've got to tell you, I wanted to be a hippie more than anything. <laughs> uh, I never quite could, could uh, master the skills of it. But the point was, is that um, that's what being is. So I do not worry about today's new, the new generation. And I, didn't, I haven't worried about any of the generations. And when they finally come in to talk to me because they're interested in psychology, they're all fabulous. And I've taught at multiple universities, and they've all been great. So I, I can't give you too much doom and gloom about this. And the other thing is, today's kids, like all kids of all generations, they are resilient. They've had to deal with us at home. Hey, just like our generation did. They've had to deal with major cultural upheaval. Hey, just like our, 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 we did. And they're now dealing with COVID which is, you know, this, it's, a, it's another thing to deal with. And there's some huge, huge challenges there. But again, I'm not losing a minute's sleep about it. And, and, and some kids are being overwhelmed by all of this. But some kids were overwhelmed in my generation and generations before that. So, sorry, I can't be more... Uh, depressing and gloomy for you but <laughs> no that's great if you were if you could change something about the university system and it were up to you what would you what would you do well um you know everybody argues or uh, looks at a system and they would like it to to match what you personally want so with that understanding I've never been a big believer in too much structure. I think that students should be encouraged to take whatever courses they want. I think that they should be aware of the job, job situation and that they should be thinking about while they're taking courses, what do they want to do with their lives? Uh, I think having a lot of required courses is a, I personally think is a terrible idea. And the, the counter argument is, is well, if we don't force them to take this, then they'll never learn it. Yeah, I find that a, one of the most pathetic arguments I've ever heard. Uh, because there are so many interesting and exciting things that students can take. And I, I would encourage them to do that. Uh, one of the big issues, I was uh, at, at uh, my university, University of Texas, uh, several years ago, I was put in charge of a new program called Project 2021. And the idea was to rethink the future of undergraduate education. And one of the big problems that we have with undergraduate education is we are trying to, tr to educate a really large number of students. And how do you do it in a way that's effective? And 
you know, people really complain a lot about online education. Well, I think online education, if done well, is a brilliant, a, a brilliant strategy. And uh, I was pushing this, and it was clear from almost the beginning that some of the top people at the university, they weren't really interested in changing things. You know, this has worked well enough for the last hundred years. Why should we worry about it now? And I can't help but be a little bit amused that here comes COVID. And COVID is essentially doing what I wanted the university to be doing, which is we need to experiment with new methods. There are so many new ways of teaching. We've got technologies that are really profound that allow us to learn things in ways that we never did. To give you an example, three weeks ago, I thought, you know, I'd like to learn to play the ukulele. Now, I've never played a string instrument in my life. I went to the music, went to college on a music scholarship because I played clarinet. I never played a chord in my whole life. And I have no, it's clear I have no skills for it. I, I can't sing worth a damn, but I'm having a ball. I'm able to, you know, there's a YouTube world out there and I've, talked, you know, my wife is learning Spanish, a good friend of mine is, you know, all these people are learning these new things. And that's what I think college should be. And one other thing what I would like college to be, college needs to be a lifelong phenomenon. We have set it up. So you go into this essentially prison for four years. And by God, you better get out in four years. Because uh, we got we have rules and regulations about that and but the reality is when you get out you still need college this is a lifelong phenomenon so what i would love to see is uh college we start thinking about college as a lifelong experience as opposed to you're here you're here to get the paper that we give you at the end so you can tell people you're a college graduate you're because with that mentality missing what's so exciting and valuable about what a college education can be. You can see I can talk about this. Oh, no, I think you should. It's, it's fascinating to me. Uh, I, I parenting second time around got, uh, older adult kids and now I have an 11 to 12 year old. And, uh, so we're, we're, uh, we're engaging, uh, online learning with some global instructors. Mm -hmm. How's that going? Well, I mean, we're just about to start it. So but this is fascinating to me, though, because this means that instead of just taking languages from someone here in the United States, we can take it from someone who's actually living in the country where we're, you know, I think it's fascinating. And so uh, I agree. So what do you think is, is going to turn upside down with all of this? It's, you know, it's impossible to tell. I think um, I... <laughs> I'm working with a very large uh, corporation and uh, that they are all this, this particular company has, I think third, it's not huge, but it has 30 or 40,000 people who work there and they now are all working from home. So the company sent out, did this big survey of all 30,000 people asking them, uh, assuming the coast is clear, do you want it? you know, to what degree would you like to continue working at home versus coming in part-time, coming to in for full-time? 
their responses, 5% said they'd like to come back full time. 74% said they'd like to stay, to work at home either all the time or most of the time. And finding that the people are, are more, they're, they're productive and they're happier. I think the world's about to change. And I've got to admit, I've been working here in, in my home office now since March. And I don't think I've ever been this productive. You know, I'm working with student, my students, students all over the world. You know, we do need to meet with people. And it'll be great once the, we, the coast is clear for us to spend time with real people. So I, I do think it's, the world's going to be changing. So do you, do you have an, an idea of what you think the impact will be? Since you wanted this before, did you do some research to see where we thought we'd be going? We have been doing some work on that. And, you know, we've done these national surveys. Uh, once COVID started, I, start, I have a gigantic uh, research group, and I'm working closely with one of my senior graduate students. Uh, and a shout out to her. Her name's Ashwini Ashokumar, who's been fabulous. And what we've been doing, we've been surveying, we surveyed maybe 30,000 people, and then we're uh, studying Reddit as well looking at hundreds of thousands of people there. And we, in our surveys, we ask people, how do you think your life's going to change when all this is over? And, you know, most people say, yes, I do want to work from home more. Uh, you know, I'm probably not going to go out to restaurants as much. I'm, uh, you know, I realize I'm not going to travel as much. I'm not sure I want to live just a wild and crazy life the way that I did in the past. So I think, I think it's forcing a... Uh, kind of a certain introspection. And, and I should say, people under the age of 30, they say, no, I want to go out more. <laughs> I did. You know, so their, view, their views are somewhat different. And, you know, I can't imagine being 20 right now and, you know, wanting to date and have fun and being stuck at home, you know, with the parents for crying out loud. But, uh, but I, do, I do think that people over the age of 30, it it really is a uh, a way call. I think it is, and it's it's um it's really interesting. Do you what do you think it'll how will it affect our educators long term? I tell you why that's such a difficult question to address is this is hitting universities around the world really horribly. Think about. Uh, a big state university like I'm at, they have not been getting any income, but they're still having to maintain their, all their buildings, their dormitories, everything, but they're bringing in no money. Our donors are losing money hand over fist because of the economy. Our students are losing money and the university is becoming increasingly expensive. And why should I pay a lot of money to go to the university when I when I'll be just doing it from from home? Um, it's going to be a certainly for the next five years. I think uh, universities are really going to have to adjust some way, and I suspect a lot of universities are going to go out of business. There will be significant cut, cutbacks. Um, I can say among uh, researchers and those who are adept at using online technology, 
we are going to be, we'll continue to be very productive. We will continue to make, we'll continue to be able to educate people, but it'll be, it'll be different. And how do you think that will be different for the students themselves? I come back to this issue that students are adaptable. You know, um, the students who really like college and really like learning, this is a great time that they, they will be able to continue to do it. You know, some students really complain about on, uh, learning online. Well, you know, that's just tough because I've had a lot of students have always had a big problem with really big classes. And then I've had other students who really hate these small classes because they feel the teacher's going to be pouncing on them all the time. You know, you know, humans are adaptable, and uh, I think it'll be okay. <laughs> I do too. I, it'll be interesting to see how things streamline. You know, you mentioned about some courses that people don't, you know, don't necessarily have to take that that have been required. It'll be interesting to see what streamlines, um, to my mind. Right. Um, and, and it also, you know, kind of raises a question of what is a class? And this was one thing I was interested in Project 2021. You know, our classes, you know, we have three-hour classes. We all took courses that were three hours. Whoever came up with the idea that classes needed to be three hours? Well, it was uh, Andrew Carnegie. Who, who created the Carnegie, Carnegie Commission back in the, in the early 1900s. And the idea was, listen, we need to have a common metric for all universities, so we're just going to say three hours. And it was a pragmatic decision. And now we have three hours because our computers are all programmed for three-hour courses. And if you want to have a one-half-hour course, you know, what if, imagine this, uh, you're you are doing uh, a podcast and let's say you want a course on audio and microphone technology mm-hmm. for, for this. And you talk to somebody and they say, you know, I could tell you all you need to know in weeks meeting um, say three times a week. So it would be six, you know, one hour lectures or, or the, that equivalent. Now, I can make it a three-hour course, and I can tell you stuff that you don't want to know, and I'm not sure would be helpful, but it's got to be three hours. I could do it. Why not have just a half-hour course? And, and that is the way that I think we need to be thinking about this is what, what is it I know? And I, for example, I teach a course on language and social media. I'd like everybody to take it but they sure better know about correlation coefficients. Now, they don't need a full course on correlation coefficients. How about there's, I have a, a course that's just floating up air, and the person now goes and pushes a button, and they spend a total of, I don't know, six hours learning about correlations, and they'll know correlations up, you know, by the time they finish that. And I'll quiz them. I mean, it's, it's a... And they could take that course any time. Any, and any class that requires that knowledge, you just have to learn it. That's interesting. Fascinating. You mentioned a minute ago one of your students, and I just want to acknowledge the fact that you like, you love actually mentorship, don't you? I do. So what do you enjoy about mentoring your students? You know, um, 
my primary students now are all graduate students. I have some undergraduate, but mostly graduate. And um, when I taught, I taught at SMU for 14 years. And most of those students were undergraduates and some master's students. It wasn't until the very end that they got a PhD program. Uh, I love having students for several years. It's like a family. And it's essentially, you know, it's really intense training. And um, I get really good students and they by and large do really well because it's it's a it really is it's a family kind of phenomenon well you know i uh want to know what is next i mean we've just talked about all these changes and everything what what are you working on and what is next for you oh i got lots of things going um i'm working one project that's uh that we're just developing right now is something we're calling expressive interviewing. We haven't talked about it today, but one of my primary areas of research is on language and language analysis. So I have a computer program that I developed. And so I work with computer scientists and I've been working with this wonderful team run by a woman by the name of Radha Milhachia, who's at uh, computer science at the university of Michigan. And she and I have been collaborating for years and, we're developing a system so that a computer can now interview you almost like expressive writing. And we're calling it expressive interviewing because let's say we've created one for COVID. And so the computer will ask you, it'll say, look, I'd like to interview you and ask you some questions about how you're dealing with the COVID situation. So it starts off. So tell me how you're, what's going on in terms of your reactions to COVID. And you'll, you'll say some things. And it is able to, uh, it, this is all typed right now. And the computer will then analyze what you said. And from that, gets a pretty good idea that this topic might be a good follow-up question. And then it might say, it, it sounds as though there's some issues with this in terms of you and your family. And then you, you, you respond. And it, sometimes it'll say, say a little bit more. Is this relevant to such and such? In other words, the computer is essentially leading this open-ended interview that's a little bit like a, a, little bit like a therapy session, a little bit like a motivational interviewer. And uh, we've run several hundred people through this, and it's, I'm very excited about it. It's a, it's a really interesting uh, kind of new direction. So that's one thing I'm excited about. It does sound like you're into a lot of things right now. So we'd love for you to come back and talk to us about that again. Okay. <laughs> so I hope you'll come back and tell us about it. Um, well, I thank will. You. We always love having you here. Thank you for being on Nelda Live. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate the work you do uh, and all the fascinating studies that have come out of the work that you've done. Um, thank you so much, Dr. James Pennebaker. Okay. Thank- I've enjoyed it. Okay, so we have two questions. Uh, so from our audience, so here we go. <laughs> if you were educating young children right now, how might you approach it? Um, I have no idea. You know, <laughs> and you know, it depends on how old they are. Um, you know, I've never been. I. I've never tried to educate young kids other than my own. And I, 
and with those, you know, I, basically I, my goal was always, I was the Pied Piper, which was, I want to do this. So let's do this. <laughs> I think that's a great way to, to educate kids though, whatever you're interested in, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a second question. In our society, children are expected to go to college after high school, whether or not they may want to go. In your opinion, is college for everyone? Are there better options, say trade schools for some kids? And I would say, of course, college is not for everyone. Um, And there are a million different options. So trade schools are a possibility. You know, a lot of it is, and, and I also think we need to be, rethinking college so that uh, sure go to trade school but let's make it so that after you do that for a year or two you go out work for a couple of years or whatever and you say you know I want I actually realize I do need to go to, to, to school and you know I want to learn such and such that we should have a, a seamless out for that person to enter college and take courses or do whatever that are, are good for her or him. It will be fascinating to see if that's the way things um, streamline and go, because I agree it, it would be a uh, sort of a wonderful inclusion of both working. You know, my father was an engineer And he got his engineering degree back in a time when, um, when he could go get certified as an engineer and take two years of just engineering work to get that. Mm -hmm. Um, but there were times later on in his life that he felt like he wished he had everything else that went along with the degree, if you will. Yes. Yeah. And it would have been nice if that were available to him. I, I agree. And I should also point out, I am speaking from the very privileged position of someone at a a top-ranked university at a very, very traditional university. I talk with people who are parts of of other more progressive universities. They're often often smaller. Sometimes they're uh, private. Sometimes they're for-profit or non-profit. And they are doing some things that I think are really exciting and interesting. And uh, so I know many people do this will have had some experience with very different types of uh, higher education strategies. And I think that's what I love about our country is with there are all of these different experiments going on all the time. And I had, I have, uh, and here's what's going to happen. If some of these, if they start to take off, Places like my university will start to pay, pay attention, especially if they start horning in on our students and our money. So, so we'll catch up. Well, you know, right. Necessity, <laughs> the mother of invention, correct? That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your time. You and bet. I hope you'll come back and tell us about all the new work you're doing. Uh, I'll have a, con- a ukulele concert. Man, now it makes me feel like I should pick one up, too. <laughs>